we've been talking about the importance of developing a biblical worldview in our midweek uh, study, and we've been thinking about more philosophical subjects for the past couple of weeks, and I'm going to be wrapping that up as uh, we go into the following week as far as this section of the study. But each week what I've done is I've given you a definition of a biblical worldview. And there are a lot of definitions of biblical worldview from different people in different places that I think are helpful. And uh, this one is from someone by the name of Daniel McCoy. And it says that it's simplest a worldview is a person's view of the world. It's your framework for understanding reality and answering the big questions about it. It's basically a roadmap for navigating reality. Here are a couple of metaphors that can be helpful. Your worldview is like a pair of glasses. It determines how you view the world. Your worldview is also like a jigsaw puzzle box top. It gives you the big picture so you can make sense of the individual pieces and arrange them in place. There is overlap between your worldview and the grand story you believe about reality. Steve Wilkins and Mark L. Sanford, authors of Hidden Worldviews, describe worldviews as cultural stories that we believe about reality. For example, if your worldview is scientific materialism, the story you believe about reality is that the physical world encompasses all reality. It is all that was, is, and will be. Now, by way of review, we've covered how a biblical worldview answers six key questions. Those six key questions being origin, identity, chaos, purpose, morality, and then destiny. We emphasize the doctrine of general revelation and how God has made himself known in creation to the point that people are without excuse. And we would say that the doctrine of general revelation is enough to condemn, but it's not enough to convert. And that's where special revelation would come in. And the doctrine of special revelation being the living word, Jesus and the written word which is also alive and guides us in everything pertaining to life and godliness. Then we thought about what a meta narrative is as it relates to the scripture, the grand story of scripture and how we can take that big story of scripture, the big story of God, the world, us, um, our problem, how we get reconciled to him and then how we're to live our lives and we can apply that meta narrative pretty much to anything in the Christian life to understand where we fit into that whole story of God and, and what he's doing in the world and then specifically what he's doing in our lives. And with that, we have to be able to develop critical thinking to discern the difference between truth and error, um, things that are true and things that are false, things that are light and things that are darkness. And with that, theology is important because it's the study of the nature of God. We're learning about God. And as we learn about God, we learn about ourselves. We learn about the world. We learn about how to interact in the world. And then we moved into these more philosophical topics, uh, including epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? We talked about a revelatory epistemology, meaning that what we know, we know because God has shown it to us. He's the God who is the self-revealing God. He's made himself known to the world through these revelations that we talked about. Ontology is the nature of being. Uh, teleology is the study of purpose. And then cosmology is the observable understanding of the universe. What can we see and observe and know about God 
the theologian Herman Bovink said, the proofs may augment and strengthen our faith, but they do not serve as its grounds. They are rather the consequences, the products of faith's observation of the world. The proofs do not induce faith, and objections against them do not wreck faith. They are instead testimonies by which God is able to strengthen already given faith. Now you remember I've talked about this several times as we've gone through this study, that the, one of the key values of apologetics or a defense of the faith, a presentation of the faith, a discussion of the faith, is for our discipleship, is for our growthness and who God is. Um, it's not so much to win an argument, though we can use truth to overcome falsehood, obviously. Our goal is to know God better uh, so that we can serve him more faithfully and present him accurately to the world according to his word. Now, we're considering in this session two more philosophical concepts that are axiology and praxeology. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to outline these, and, and they're very straightforward. The words are just more uh, complex but I'm going to argue that values drive actions in the biblical worldview. Because if we were to replace these two words, axiology and praxeology, we would replace these words with values and practice, or values and action. So what are the core fundamental things that we hold on to, that we value, that we think are important? And then how do we act on those or live according to those uh, within our biblical worldview. So let's begin with axiology, which is the study of value. Now, in order to present this, I think, accurately from a biblical standpoint, uh, we need to contrast it with what the world often sees as valuable. The world often places great value on position, possessions, power in the world that you might hold on to, prominence, pleasure, other people, these are all worldly values. These are things that in and of themselves are not necessarily inherently bad. They might even be morally neutral. But if they're idolized or seen as ultimately important, that's where we get into trouble. And what worldly values can sometimes do when we're holding on to them is promote jealousies and resentments and conflicts and trouble. Because we're all jockeying for these things, but we're not valuing the things that are most important to God. The Bible, on the other hand, presents enduring values like humility and character and generosity and peace and kindness and goodwill and love and faithfulness and on and on I could go. And the way that we live every day reveals what we value. So whether you could communicate tonight what your core values are or not, if we were able to do a deep dive into your life and see what you spend your time on, what you spend your money on, what your affections are focused on, then we would find out what you value. Now, clearly, our values are often mixed at times because we have the best of intentions but sometimes we get overemphasized in certain areas. And again, these aren't things that are, are bad things necessarily, but they're just things that can get out of order if we're not valuing the right things. And values are principles that we live by that influence the way we act and how we perceive the world around us. Your values are central to who you are 
in what you want to be. Axiology is the study of value, but it's not only the study of value, it's the study of how values come about in a society. So if we say the axiology of theism, we're addressing the question of what the value of God is in the world, and we're seeing God as infinitely valuable, and how the world draws all of its value from God as the creator. So all of this is closely intertwined. Um, Louis Vassalis in God's Existence, the basic for objective moral values, wrote this. He said, to be meaningful in an objective sense, axiological statements or value statements must have the force of obligating a moral agent to either perform a prescribed action or prohibit him from carrying one out. So if that force is not sufficiently authoritative, by what right may any human impose his personal convictions on other humans? So translated, I would say the goodness of God and the ultimate power and authority of God is the foundation for goodness in the world. So if God is that ultimate authority, he's the ultimate value, and then all of creation derives its value from God, then we're going to see him as he rightly is. I think about Psalm 27 and verse 4, one of the verses that I want to read this evening. And in Psalm 27, you might remember David is expressing his top priority in life. His top priority in life is his relationship with the Lord. In the context of that psalm, he was in the wilderness uh, running from his enemies, seeking refuge. But where was his heart? His heart was in the tabernacle, seeking the beauty of God. And sometimes trouble has the effect of driving us closer to the Lord and making us want to worship Him even more in the fellowship of other believers. So I want to read Psalm 27 and verse 4. And he says, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is all I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking Him in His temple. Now let's think for a moment about this phrase, gazing on the beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the Lord can be defined as God possessing everything that God possesses uh, in his character that is desirable with everything in the character of God being desirable. So we would say that God is beautiful in every way. He's glorious in every way. He's the one who defines what these things are. So this focuses on God as the ground or the fountain of all goodness. And every revelation of God is a revelation of his beauty. Think about everything in nature, in the flower that blooms, in the bird that sings, in the dewdrop that sparkles, in the star that shines, in the sunset that burns with splendor, in the fall leaves and the foliage and the beauty of the season. All of it is from the fountain of the goodness of God. It is inseparable because everything beautiful derives from God who is the creator of all things beautiful. And he has made everything beautiful in his time, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says. I think about the prayer of Moses where we have the petition, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. This was a prayer that the beauty of God would shine in them, in their lives, in their faces, and in their souls. So God is the source of objective value in this life. 
Or to say it another way, we find ultimate meaning in this life through knowing God and having a relationship with Him. The missionary David Livingstone, who served in Africa, said, I place no value on anything that I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of God. If anything will advance the interest of the kingdom, it shall be given away or kept. Only as by giving or keeping it, I shall most promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes in time or in eternity. So if we believe that God is the source of objective value in this life, there are some things about God that define everything else about God. Now, I'm not trying to compartmentalize the the attributes of God. That's impossible to do. Um, I don't think it's even particularly helpful to, to elevate certain attributes over other attributes because he is in perfection in all of them. But I do want to highlight a few that I think are significant for us in our understanding of him. The driving, would, would, the driving one would be that God is holy in every way. Psalm 96 and verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Now you know that the word holiness meant to be set apart in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament it's connected more directly to the perfection of God. The holiness of God refers to the majesty of his being. And to the fact that he is absolutely unblemished. In his moral purity God is perfect in his character in every way he's the standard of integrity he's the standard of ethical purity so you can see why the axiology or the values that we hold on to are so important in our actions in life because if we hold to the value that God is in his being unblemished in every way and we are to be as he is in the world, then that's what we're pursuing as we desire to be more like Jesus. God is unlike any other, and his holiness pervades everything. It shapes everything. And his love is a holy love. His mercy is a holy mercy. His wrath is a holy wrath. And this impacts how we see him and how we relate to him as well. But not only is God holy, but God is true. Psalm 119 and verse 130 says, The revelation of your words brings light and gives understanding to the inexperienced. Now, I give this definition a lot, but it's because I want you to get it eventually. Um, Truth is that which corresponds to reality. So truth is not a construct of what we want it to be or of social um, values that we would come together with collectively or anything else. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. God himself is the source of all truth. So he has a total understanding and embodiment of what is real, what is right, and what is completely accurate. And he is the anchor of truth in a society of relativism and lies. And that's why we need to be like the psalmist who said, Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may live according to your truth. Now, if we don't value God as the majestic majestic one and the beautiful one and the holy one and the true one, then we're going to set our own agenda. And we know how that goes. All you got to do is look at the world around us and you see people setting their own agendas all the time and they get themselves in all sorts of trouble. 
So God is holy, God is true, and then the third thing that I would say is that God is faithful. Now, faithfulness is at the heart of all that God does, so he fulfills his promises. He's reliable, he's trustworthy, um, he, he does it with absolute integrity, and he has a commitment to do what is for our good, because he's a good father, and for what is in for his glory. And he has a commitment to do that. And he's faithful in that. Now, we, on the other hand, are sometimes checkered in our faithfulness, even if we have good intentions. Maybe we forget that we told somebody we were going to do something, or, or maybe we got out over our skis a little bit, and we didn't have the capacity to do whatever it was that we promised them that we wanted to do. That's why I'm a proponent of uh, under-promise and over-deliver rather than over-promise and under-deliver. Uh, but at any rate, God's not that way. He never comes up short on power to be able to do what he says he's going to do. He never forgets the promise that he's made. He, he, he's promised he'll never leave us and, or forsake us, and, and he won't do that. So he's the source of objective value in this life, but then also God is the source of objective value in the afterlife. Now this is a big deal because we hold on to hope in this short life that we live, and we hold on to that hope looking toward the afterlife. And however we rejoice in the beauty of God now is only a foretaste of what it will be like eternally. And this has been referred to as the uh, beatific uh, vision or um, an apprehension of the beauty of God. And I just can't understand how sometimes I, people will, will communicate that somehow they find the idea of, of heaven boring or they find the idea of God boring and and it, it, it's, it's because of the hardness of the heart, ultimately, or poor discipleship, that people have not been taught what they should be anticipating. But we have, a, we have such a hope that we're holding on to, because we know this world's not all there is. And as our bodies diminish here, and we encounter all types of problems and obstacles and troubles and trials and tribulations and everything in between, we have this heavenly hope that is imperishable. And we're longing for the beauty of the age to come. And I think one of the effects of focusing on the afterlife and on heaven is that it frees us from an unhealthy preoccupation with the here and now. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's our eternal residence. And we can learn now to know God so that we will enjoy him forever. Jonathan Edwards said the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Edwards says fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. A focus on heaven gives us strength to endure now, and the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. So you ask, what are we going to see there? We're going to see the glory of God. And we're going to be in a place where there's no more sin. There's no more crying. No more sorrow. There's going to be eternal peace and rest and purpose and God himself will be there what will we hear there 
we will hear the sound of perfected souls singing eternal praises to God. What will we do there? We will serve God and enjoy all that he has for us forever. And that's a wonderful thought. That's not a pie-in-the-sky uh, hope. It's certainty. It's a no-so kind of a hope. And then finally, God is the source of justice in this particular section. And I want to speak to the subject on the idea of God being the source of justice, particularly as it relates to the problem of evil in the world in light of the existence of God. Now, I've used this word before, but the word theodicy, uh, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, refers to the problem of evil in the world in light of the existence of God. So the question goes something like this. If God is just, if God is a good God, is, is how it's phrased often, then why and how does evil exist? Well, we know that God did not cause evil, but God permitted it within the framework of free will. And God is consistent in allowing people a broad use of that free will. And it was misused in the garden. And it included allowing people to reject his will and spurn his commandment, which ultimately brings consequences. If that was the end of the story, then it would be a valid question. How could we say that God is good if this evil exists and this world is broken as it is? But we know the redemption story is that the justice of God was applied at the cross when Jesus died as our substitute. And because the justice of God was applied at the cross when Jesus died as our substitute, in the end, we will either be welcomed into heaven as forgiven sinners, we've been justified freely by the blood of Jesus, or we will be relegated to hell to pay the just penalty for our sins. But either way, God is just, his justice is perfect, and the judge of all the earth will always do what is right. So while it might seem like in the meantime that evil in the, in the near term is flourishing and people are getting by with what they're getting by with, nobody gets by with anything in the end. God's justice is perfect. And if we are in Christ, we don't have to worry about it uh, because uh, we will be in him and our values are derived from God and from his word he's the source of objective value but now let's move to the second part and that is praxeology or the study of action now there's a lot of talk about this in in philosophy and specifically in the field of ethics so all of us relate to ethics whether or not we're ethicists by trade or whether or not we've ever studied it at all right there's codes of ethics there are things that we intuitively know are right and wrong i mean whatever your vocation is there are uh, probably ethics that you're expected to abide by and to follow and, and where where does that stuff come from how do you know what the right thing to do or what the things to avoid are ethics is concerned with goodness and trying to understand what is good and what it means to be good praxeology answers the question how should we act and what guides our actions so this rests on the fact that individuals feel value think and act and the word comes from two words 
one being praxis, which literally means purposeful action, and the other being logos, meaning word or thought or principle of knowledge. Now, obviously, properly applied when we think about the logos, we're thinking about Christ, the embodiment of, of the word. Um, but here, we're thinking about a word or a thought or a principle of knowledge. Now, this term was popularized in France in the latter part of the 19th century uh, based on Alfred uh, Espinosa's theory of human action. And he referred to it as the science of human action. So human action is understood, at least in this part, deductively. And the theory was applied particularly in those days to economics, but then it was more broadly applied uh, to the field of ethics. So let me give you an example of this. Um, when children ask the question, why, they are asking ultimately axiological questions. But when they ask the question, how, they're asking praxeological questions. So we're asking the values that underlie what we do and then the action of what we actually do in our lives. So our verses here are Proverbs 4 and verse 25 and 26. And here's what the scripture says. Let your eyes look forward, fix your gaze straight ahead. Carefully consider the path for your feet and all your ways will be established. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Keep your feet away from evil. Now I love this imagery of a path that's used in Proverbs because it explains the value of wisdom. And we might compare wickedness to a dark, jagged, rocky path that's prone to danger maybe leads us to despair whereas godliness provides a bright and a safe path and solomon told his son to look directly forward and keep his gaze straight ahead now we've all been on a dark rugged terrain probably at one time or the other maybe it was nothing more than uh, just trying to find something in, in your yard in the dark and you know how treacherous that can be. And then you've also been on a nice open pathway that's clean, that's paved, that's well lit, that's safe. And that would be an apt comparison of the two options that are before us. Praxeology is driven by identity. Who we are determines what we do. So now let's go back just a little bit in our study on developing a biblical worldview. And let's remind ourselves of who we are. We have been created in the image of God, in the Imago Dei. The Hebrew word for image, uh, you might remember, refers to a hewn or carved image, like a statue that bears a strong physical resemblance to a person or to the thing that it represents. So the word for likeness means a facsimile, basically. We are made to resemble God immaterially, which sets us apart from the animal world. Genesis 1 and verse 26 says, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So you might consider it like this. Intellectually, morally, emotionally, and socially, we resemble God in the image that he has made us in. Now, obviously, the fall has marred all of that. We're in a broken world. Without redemption and restoration, none of this would make any difference. But the identity is important. So I, I think sometimes uh, when I was growing up, I often heard the phrase, uh, remember who you are. 
And what that meant was, don't go out and embarrass us, is what that really meant. But it was a good thought. And maybe as Christians, we need to be told that as well. Hey, remember who you are. Re remember that you have been created in the image of God, and that makes you unique to God. You are valuable to God because you've been created in His image. And He has redeemed you by His Son. And that identity matters because it drives what you value and then what you do. But I would say that praxeology is also shaped by motivations. And a motive, a motive is the underlying reason for an action. And I would like to say that my motives were pure, but my motives, like your motives, are often mixed. That's why we have to yield them to the Lord regularly. That's why prayer is important. That's why coming before the Lord daily is important. That's why reading His Word and, and reflecting on it is important. And Proverbs 16 and verse 2 says, All a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the motives. And we can be pulled into any number of negative motivations. Pride, because we're concerned about what other people think about us. Anger, maybe, because we didn't get our way. Revenge, because somebody did something wrong to us. Entitlement, because we think somebody owes us something. Desire for approval or the need to be needed. All these things are things that can pull us into these motivations a different path than what we should be walking as Christians. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4 says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. Now listen to what this phrase says in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4. But to please God who tests our hearts. Now, I, I don't know how that strikes you. Um, that brings a little bit of fear to me, like fear in a reverential sense, that there's no corner of my heart or yours that is off limits to God. There is nothing that we can hide from God. He sees it all, and yet he's still gracious and merciful to us. I like the way J.I. Packer explained the power of biblical motivation and what sets us apart from every other religion and ethical system in the world. He said, the secular world never understands Christian motivation. Faced with the question of what makes Christians tick, unbelievers maintain that Christianity is practiced only out of self-serving purposes. They see Christians as fearing the consequences of not being Christians. In other words, uh, religion is fire insurance or feeling the need to help and support to achieve their goals, religion as a crutch, or wishing to sustain a social identity, religion as a badge of respectability. He says, no doubt all these motivations can be found among the membership of churches. It would be futile to dispute that. But a self-seeking motivation brought into the church is not thereby made Christian, nor will holiness ever be the right name for religious routines thus motivated. From the plan of salvation, Packer says, I learned that the true driving force in authentic Christian living is and ever must be not the hope of gain, but the heart of gratitude. That we would be grateful to God for who he is and all that he's done and we'd ask him to purify our motives. Christian motivation begins with God. God's interested in our motives. When Jesus comes again, he's going to bring to light what is hidden in the darkness. And he will expose the motives of the heart. And God sees what nobody else sees. 
He knows why we do what we do, not only what we do. See, at best, all I can tell is what you do by my observation, but I can't see your heart. But God sees what you do, and he knows why you did it, and everything in between. So that says to us, not that we should be living with a sense of, of fear, as in being fearful, but we should live with a sense of reverence and awe of God to say, God, help me in this life as best I can in the power of your Holy Spirit that I would live with good motivations and that if my motivations get in the way, please convict me of that and show me what I need to be aligned with Christ. So here's some questions we might ask to, to test our motivations. Why am I doing this? If someone knew I was doing this as, as it relates to something negative, would I continue to do it? If someone didn't know I was doing it as it relates to something positive, and I'm not getting attention for it, in other words, would I continue to do it? Do I think somehow that I'm earning God's blessing, love, approval, or acceptance by what I do? And before we can do anything for God, Jesus has already done it all for us. Praxeology guides our relationships as well meaning that other people are worthy of respect and love whether we see them as deserving or not. Matthew 7 and verse 12 says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. You know one of the things I hate about myself sometimes is I am quick to measure other people up. I might measure them up by what value I think their vocation has. or I'm just being transparent. Or I might, we're all prone to measure people up by what they look like, how they appear, how they present themselves. We might measure them up by how well their personality matches up with ours. I mean, there's all these subjective measurements that we measure people up with. And that's not doing unto others as we would have them do unto us, because that's not how we want to be treated. Uh, do you want to be respected? Then respect other people. You want to be loved? then love other people. You want to be valued, then value other people. You want to have friends, then you got to be a friend. You want to be helped, then you got to help. And when you understand the value of other people as image bearers, remember this all goes together. This is why this biblical worldview is so important. We cannot separate all these pieces out. This all goes together in the Christian life in our relationship with Jesus. And when you understand the value of other people as image bearers, it informs how you relate to them. That even if they are different, or, or, or maybe there's something about them you don't like, or something that's off-putting, you're not going to make a value judgment about their life, or about their personhood. You're going to respect them, and you're going to see them as valuable to God. And we're relational people. We've been created as worshipers to be in a relationship with God, but we're also created to be in a relationship with other people. We're created to know and to love and to be in communion with God, we're created for community where we belong and we experience God through others. That, that's how we grow. That's, that's why the, the church is so important. Is we're, we're encouraging one another all the more as we see the, the day approaching. Discipleship is done in, in community among people. And where your strengths are encouraging my weaknesses and, and, and my strengths are encouraging you. And we're building one another up in the faith as we go along. And we're created for mutual service and love for others and ultimately joy and good uh, in the world so i want to say this in summary 
And I'm going to add a few things here and then we're going to conclude. Axiology relates to belief and praxeology relates to behavior. Which is more important? Well, when you breathe, which is more important, inhale or exhale? You got to do both if you're going to be alive. So I would say to you that belief and behavior both matter. Behavior is the evidence that belief is genuine. Faith is demonstrated by action. And as Christians, we're urged to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, surrendering our entire being to God. And if the teachings of the Bible are true, and they are from beginning to the end and everything in between, then it absolutely matters whether you allow these beliefs to affect the way you view the world. So to use common metaphors, if you don't look at reality through the true worldview, then it's like trying to make sense of thousands of individual puzzle pieces without the box top. Or it's like trying to make sense of the outside world with a pair of glasses that distorts rather than bringing clarity. There was a study by the Barna Group uh, not too long ago that released some unfortunate news regarding some of the syncretism that's in the worldviews of Christians in America whether they be parents or pastors or anything else. And most shocking of all is how, based on his 54-question survey taken by a 1,000 Christian pastors, just slightly more than one-third had a consistent biblical worldview. And many possess a worldview that is nothing more than syncretism. It's just a mishmash of stuff. Our goal as disciples is to have a God-honoring, biblically-driven worldview that is practical to life. Like, how do you make decisions when you go to work tomorrow? How do you make decisions as you're helping your kids grow up? How do you make decisions about how you use your resources and how you use your gifts and on and on I could go? And as we do that in the church, we've got to equip and train people to, tra to take captive every thought to make them obedient to Christ. And how we think and what we believe really matters. And instead of thinking according to the ways of Jesus, many people are thinking according to the ways of the world. And you've got to use this as a filter. And ask, is it consistent with God and His character? And is it consistent with God and his word? And then ask God for wisdom on how to live it out.